Welcome to the My Canine Coach Podcast, a show that coaches dog owners on how to achieve their ideal lifestyle with and for their dogs. You'll hear from canine coach Dana as she breaks down actionable dog training protocols, explores current dog training trends, and shares insights from her own experiences owning and working with dogs. Now, here's your host, canine coach Dana. As a podcast geared towards speaking to and serving pet dog owners, I wanted to share this episode to expand your knowledge of the various training methodologies available to you and your dog. If you listened to episode one, then you already know my background and experience hiring trainers who employ different training methods or systems to solve the problem my dog Coda had. If you didn't listen to that episode, shame on you, go back and listen to it. (laughs) At that time, I was looking for help with my personal dog before I even became a trainer, and I hired two trainers without ever really considering that they may subscribe to different training ideologies on how to train a dog and that their views would impact the training methods we would put in place to overcome the problems that I was having with CODA. So this episode is all about arming you with the knowledge to help you make the best decision in hiring a trainer whose training practices are going to be effective in helping you reach your goals and who also aligns with your own beliefs about how your dog should be trained. Before we dive into the methods out there, I do need to premise that if I were to label myself in any of these training camps of methodologies, the label that would be most applicable to what I do is a balanced trainer. So it is necessary for me to share that because since I subscribe to this one methodology, I can't completely act impartial to what I'm going to share. And it won't be for lack of trying, I promise you. I'm going to do my very best to give only information rather than opinion, but it's humanly impossible to not act biasly in the words we choose to say or how we choose to say them since this is a podcast. Essentially, what we practice makes up who we are and we can't separate ourselves from ourselves. Not to get too philosophical on you, but it is important for me to express that before we dive into this topic because I want you to be informed about who you're getting your information from and always exercise a healthy dose of caution when you receive information from other people. All right, so let's move on and talk about the training spectrum. For you visual learners out there, I'm going to describe it as best as I can in audio format but I'll also be dropping a graphic of the spectrum in the private Facebook group to go along with this episode and provide you with clarity where I might falter in describing it perfectly. If you're not in the group, the link to join is in the show notes. It's a free group of cool dog people and we'd love to have you in there. Okay, so the best way to describe the various methodologies out there is to think of dog training practices on a spectrum. So imagine a horizontal line. On either end of that line are the poles, which are the most extreme or singular in their training practice. And then as you move away from the poles towards the middle of the line, you start to get blends of various methods at various ratios until you're in the dead center where all methods are used in equal measure. So this may be a little bit fuzzy right now, but once I start sharing where the various methods fall on that line, things are going to make more sense for you. So bear with me. And if you need help, just go check the Facebook group. 
So let's first define what methods sit at the poles, and then we'll work our way in towards the middle from either end. So all the way on the left at the end of the spectrum line is purely positive training. This training methodology goes by many names. Uh, most of them do, unfortunately, or most of, the, most of the methodologies out there have many names that signify what they are, so it can be a bit confusing. But the big most common names are purely positive R+. Plus. So you'll see like a big letter R with a plus sign that's either before or after it. And positive reinforcement only training is another name for the methodology that sits at the very left end on the pole. So those are all the names that kind of mean essentially the same thing. That's that one training methodology. Purely positive, big R with a plus sign, and positive reinforcement only. A trainer who subscribes to this method desires to only use positive reinforcement to train the dogs they work with. What this means is they add something, that's what the word positive means in positive reinforcement, to make a dog's behavior more likely to happen again in the future. I know that's very technical, so let me just give you an example. You're hanging out at home and your dog randomly chooses to sit down. You notice, and so you go give them a treat. What you just did was added something, the treat, to make it more likely that your dog will sit in the future. Why would it make it more likely that your dog sits in the future? Because they were reinforced for sitting. They earned or they gained something valuable, and your dog will look for opportunities to improve their situation in every decision they make. It's what actually drives your dog to act. They're either looking to better their situation by earning or gaining pleasure, or they're looking to better their situation by avoiding or removing discomfort. Trainers who follow and practice this positive reinforcement only method do not intentionally use punishment when training a dog to get the results their clients are seeking. Punishment is used to decrease the likelihood of a dog doing something in the future. So it's the opposite of reinforcement. So an example of that would be popping the leash when the dog starts to drift ahead of you on a walk to stop them from drifting any farther away and to decrease the likelihood that they will push ahead again in the future. A positive reinforcement trainer is an excellent trainer to hire if you want to teach your dog to do something because these trainers primarily utilize positive reinforcement methods, which, as we just discussed, are designed to increase the likelihood of a dog doing something again in the future. So they're a perfect match for you if that's what you're looking for. If you have a problem behavior, let's say your dog countersurfs, then positive reinforcement isn't going to get them to stop doing that because it isn't designed to decrease the likelihood of something happening. Only punishment impacts behavior in that way. And trainers of this system do not employ the use of punishment. But that doesn't mean that a positive reinforcement trainer can't help you in that scenario or others like it. For instance, with the countersurfing, most purely positive trainers would recommend the dog has no access to counters. Positive reinforcement, as we know, is really effective at getting dogs to do things. And trainers who use this system are effective at teaching your dog to do an incompatible behavior 
when you control the variables or factors that lead to the behavior you don't like. So for countersurfing, it's entirely possible to control the factors that lead to countersurfing. You can have a leash on your dog to control their access to the kitchen, or you can use gates and only allow them in the kitchen when you're ready and prepared to train them. When you control all these variables, this allows you to reward them for doing something else you like, say laying down on a bed or a towel you set up in the kitchen area. If your dog goes to the bed, you add something to reinforce them for making that choice by giving them affection or giving them a treat or a toy. With practice over time, you can eliminate the countersurfing by building up such a strong reinforcement history of going to the bed whenever my owner is cooking in the kitchen that it becomes the best choice. In the dog's mind, countersurfing is no longer the best option because they don't always get rewarded in that scenario. The dog doesn't always get the food off the counter, but going to their bed always earns them a reward, so that ranks as the best option for them, and it's the one that they're going to choose moving forward. So this all happened, though, because the owner or the trainer were able to control all of those variables. They were able to prevent the dog from countersurfing or prevent the dog from getting rewarded if it did happen to countersurf. So positive reinforcement training is great for teaching your dog to do things. It's exceptional at that. It's scientifically designed to do that. And that's one method of training available to you. If you're the kind of person who prefers to use rewards in training and isn't comfortable with correcting or punishing your dog, then it's the ideal method for you and the one that you're likely going to see great results with because it aligns with your values. You're going to put the most effort into something that you believe in. Where you will struggle with getting results in this system is stopping behaviors you don't like that your dog does when you can't control all the variables. The reason why this method isn't best suited for working these types of behavior problems is because there will be conflicting reinforcement occurring. So if we go back to our countersurfing example, if sometimes while you're trying to teach your dog that there's a better option, aka going to that bed or towel in the kitchen, they also on occasion are getting rewarded for jumping up on the counter by snagging a piece of food here and there, it becomes less obvious that going to their bed is the best option because both behaviors are leading to a reward. So they will forever compete against each other. And sometimes you'll have days where your dog chooses to go to their bed, and sometimes they'll decide to countersurf. So if you can't control all the variables that lead to the bad behavior and 100% of the time prevent your dog from doing the bad behavior while you're training the new behavior you would like them to do instead, you will struggle to make progress or attain great change in how your dog acts. This is why trainers of this system put a lot of focus on management. They understand that without control, positive reinforcement becomes less or ineffective. So in this case, there would be a lot of emphasis on managing your dog's access to the kitchen and the counters with gates or things like that to prevent a competing reinforcement history 
from reducing the impact of the positive reinforcement training. All right, so we just covered the left side of the spectrum, and more specifically, the method that sits at that left pole. Now I'm going to talk about the opposite pole, which is compulsion training. So if we're visualizing our line again, all the way on the right end of the line sits this training methodology. Trainers who use this method are often referred to as compulsion trainers, but they don't label themselves that. And I know this can make it confusing to know who you're talking to when you're looking for a trainer, but these trainers are most likely not going to refer to themselves as compulsion trainers. They're more likely to just refer to themselves as dog trainers, and they're not really going to put any additional labels on themselves. Not every dog trainer who chooses not to label themselves is a compulsion trainer, but it's just a common practice among trainers of this methodology, so that's why I want to make you aware of it. Trainers who use this system primarily utilize punishment and negative reinforcement to train the dogs they work with. We already talked about what punishment is. It's to decrease the likelihood of, be of a behavior occurring again in the future. But we haven't yet talked about negative reinforcement, so let's define what that is. Negative reinforcement is the act of removing discomfort to encourage a dog to do something again in the future. So in human terms, because I find that explaining this concept is best understood when I compare it to experience that we all have had, if you get in your car and just turn your car on without first putting on your seatbelt, your car is going to ding at you until you put your seatbelt on. Well, depending on the age of your car. <laughs> that ding begins simply because when the car system is running, it will automatically ding if it senses the passenger doesn't have the seatbelt clicked into the buckle. It's totally impersonal and it's just a pre-programmed feature that we know will turn off as soon as we buckle the seatbelt. When we do buckle it, the dings stop. The dings in this scenario are the discomfort that encourages you to act to make them go away, and in the future, encourages you to put your seatbelt on sooner the next time you get in the car to avoid the discomfort of hearing that annoying tone go off every two or three seconds. That's negative reinforcement. Some type of discomfort was removed as soon as you performed a specific action, and by doing that specific action, you know what to do in the future to avoid the discomfort, which makes it more likely that you will do that action in the future. Another example is sunbathing. Eventually, if it's hot enough when you're sitting out in the sun, you'll reach a level of discomfort, which will cause you to act by moving into the shade or jumping into the pool or whatever action it is that will make that discomfort less or go away. After you experience that one time, you know that you can avoid the overheated feeling, which will prompt you in the future to move into the shade earlier or jump into the pool sooner or just not sit out in the sun if you just don't like that feeling. So when trainers use negative reinforcement when working with a dog, they apply some type of discomfort in a way that leads the dog to doing a specific action. Once the dog does the action that they're looking for, they remove the discomfort and the dog learns that Doing that action is beneficial in making the discomfort go away or avoiding it entirely in the future. 
And that discomfort can vary based on the dog and based on the action the trainer is looking for the dog to do. Sometimes it's spatial pressure where the trainer walks closer towards the dog and then moves away, aka releases the pressure of being in the dog's space after the dog does the desired behavior. It could be creating tension on a leash until the dog does what we're looking for and then immediately removing that tension. It could be applying a stimulation through an e-collar until the dog does the thing that we're looking for and then turning that stim off. So it's utilized in many forms and more than I just listed, but that is how negative reinforcement works. Discomfort is applied until the dog does the desired behavior. Then it is immediately removed to teach the dog that the action it just performed resulted in that discomfort going away. And with expert practice, the dog learns that just doing the action in the future will allow it to avoid the discomfort altogether, aka putting on your seatbelt before you even turn the car on will prevent you from hearing any dinging at all. So back to our compulsion methodology, trainers at this end of the spectrum rely on these two training practices, negative reinforcement and punishment. These trainers use tools to punish behaviors their clients want to go away, and they use negative reinforcement to teach dogs to do things. So let's compare compulsion training with positive reinforcement training to clarify the difference between these two and why they exist on the poles. So let's say one trainer from each pole is teaching a dog to sit. A positive reinforcement trainer will use a reward like food in their hand to lure the dog into a sit by moving their hand with the food in it to guide the dog into a sit position. Then they will reward the dog once the dog is in the sit position to teach the dog that there is an opportunity for you to get rewarded when you do this and therefore provide an incentive for the dog to do that again, do the sit again in the future. A compulsion trainer would use negative reinforcement to teach the dog to sit. They would pull up on a leash to apply pressure on the dog's collar in a way that would guide their body into a sit. And as soon as the dog sat, they would release that tension, teaching the dog in that moment that when you feel discomfort applied to your collar in this way, if you sit, the discomfort will go away. Both trainers would eventually graduate the dog to hearing the command first. So the dog would hear sit. And if the dog failed to sit, they would either use positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement to give the dog additional information about what they're expected to do. With practice, the dog in both scenarios would learn that the sooner they sit, the sooner they either get the reward from the positive reinforcement trainer or avoid the discomfort entirely from the negative reinforcement trainer. In both cases, the dog learns how to win the game and are motivated to sit in the future when they hear the command. The difference is in how they are motivated. One dog is motivated by the possibility of earning a reward. The other dog is motivated by the possibility of avoiding any and all discomfort. Both are effective at teaching the dog to sit, and there are benefits and drawbacks to both methods as well. The benefits of positive reinforcement is that the dog is typically excited to carry out the command because they're driven by pleasure, 
But the drawback is that there's no way to make the dog do the command if they decide not to. They can and will decide sometimes that your reward isn't something they're interested in in that moment and will choose to not do what you're asking. So the drawback of positive reinforcement is limited reliability. Because we can't make the dog do it after they hear the command, if they're just not interested in the reward, aka if the reward isn't seen as an incentive, we can't use it to make the dog do anything because they just don't want it, which is going to make our command less reliable. There's nothing that's going to ensure that the dog must do it. And so there's going to be a limit there to how reliable your commands are. The benefit of the compulsion method is that you can make the dog do the command after you give it because you can use pressure to make it happen right then and there. So there is really high reliability in that system. Now, there are two drawbacks, though. The first is that the dog isn't performing with excitement or heart and soul. They're performing to avoid something that they don't like. And that in and of itself isn't a mindset that makes a dog feel incredible or amazing. So dogs taught through compulsion methods are often described as flat. They know it's in their best interest to follow through on the commands a trainer gives, but they're not thrilled to be doing them. In that same line of thought, because compulsion method training does not use any positive reinforcement, it is ineffective at changing how a dog feels about a certain situation if those feelings are negative in any way, like fear or anxiety. There's no way within the system to incorporate positive emotions with events or scenarios that typically cause the dog to feel negatively. Compulsion training is limited to only providing negative consequences for how the dog acts and is lacking in any methods that would change how a dog feels. Now, there is a training methodology that blends these two systems. And this is what's most commonly called balance training or relationship-first dog training. I've also heard that as well. Under this training methodology, trainers use a combination of positive reinforcement, negative reinforcement, and punishment. What ratios of each an individual balance trainer uses is typically very unique to them. They may lean more heavily towards punishment and utilize positive reinforcement less so or vice versa. And that's why I've been describing all of this through the lens of a spectrum. We have our poles for sure, but where a trainer falls on the spectrum that would consider themselves a balanced trainer varies. Some balanced trainers will be more towards the end of the spectrum near the compulsion side, so towards the right side, and some will more so fall on the positive reinforcement end and find themselves closer to the left side of the spectrum. But there is a final piece to this that on the surface will seem to make it more confusing, but actually differentiates the good balance trainers out there from the just okay ones. And that's the ability and more so the tendency to adapt their ratios based on the dog in front of them. So a great balance trainer won't just sit at one spot on the spectrum. They're fluid, so they move back and forth on the spectrum all the time, depending on the dog that they're working with. So if you imagine all three training options as sections on a pie chart, so we've got positive reinforcement, 
negative reinforcement and punishment. And I'm going to put up a graphic in the Facebook group of this as well. Some slices are going to be larger than others, depending on where a trainer falls on the spectrum. But any ethical balance trainer will tell you that the size of the slices is dependent on the individual dog they're working with. Depending on the dog's behavior, capacity, capability, mindset, and history, the pie chart is going to and should look different. This avoids cookie-cutter approaches or prescribing every dog the same training protocol regardless of the nuances that make up that individual dog or behavior. And that's what makes a competent, ethical, and impactful dog trainer or balanced dog trainer. Actually, I should say just dog trainer in general. I find or I believe that that's what makes an ethical and impactful dog trainer. There we go. There's your one opinion added into this episode that I'm trying to avoid. (laughs) So just to add more clarity of how a balanced trainer is different from positive reinforcement and compulsion trainers, let's circle back to teaching the sit for just a second. The most common ratio balanced trainers employ is heavy on positive reinforcement in the beginning to motivate the dog with pleasure and joy to do what is being asked of them. And then they use negative reinforcement and punishment to build up the reliability into the behavior that the dog has learned from the positive reinforcement work. So if you're looking at a pie chart, positive reinforcement may make up 75% of that pie chart. And then negative reinforcement takes up maybe 20% of the remaining and punishment exists on there for like 5%. So that's what the pie chart could look like for one particular balance trainer and what generally does it does look like for very responsible and ethical balance trainers. In the example of the sit, a balance trainer would teach the dog to sit using positive reinforcement. Once the dog learned what is expected of them when their owner says sit, a balance trainer would then layer in negative reinforcement and later punishment to achieve the reliability that the owner wants. Balance training revolves around consequences. What your dog does results in a consequence that can either be perceived as something good or rewarding or something bad or punishing. The word consequence just means that something will follow as a direct result of something else. And balanced dog trainers sometimes give pleasant consequences and sometimes they give unpleasant consequences depending on what the dog is doing and at what stage of training they are in. Balanced trainers don't limit themselves in how they are able to communicate, teach, or train the dog in terms of tools or methods. Balanced trainers see it as their job to teach the dog how to game the system, to learn what actions of theirs result in good things and which ones result in unpleasant things so that the dog can predict what's in their best interest to do, aka how can I or can I predict how to avoid the unpleasantries and can I predict how to acquire the pleasantries? Being able to predict outcomes gives the dog a secure feeling of control over what they experience and that mindset eases their stress because they know what to expect in all situations. Now, there's one final training methodology I'm going to cover with you, and then you will have the full picture of the spectrum. 
This final one, trainers label themselves as Lima, L-I-M-A, trainers. Lima stands for least intrusive, minimally aversive. What this means is trainers who identify with this system of training have a hierarchy that determines what protocols they put in place to help their owners achieve the goals they are seeking for their dog. And this hierarchy requires that a Lima trainer uses the most positive reinforcement related tools and methods that they can and the least negative reinforcement or punishment tools or methods that they can to achieve the desired outcome in training. It is only when the ratio of positive reinforcement to negative reinforcement and punishment proves to be ineffective that a Lima trainer would adjust that ratio to use less positive reinforcement tools or methods and more negative reinforcement or punishment tools or methods. There's a graphic that goes along with this training methodology and it's a pyramid. You can check the Facebook group for it, but for now, in this audio format, I'm going to describe what that looks like. So picture a triangle in your head with different layers to it, like we have layers in the earth, so horizontal sections. In the bottom or the lowest section is positive reinforcement tools and methods only. If a Lima trainer can get the outcome the client desires by only using those methods and tools, they will. And they will never suggest or utilize any punishment or negative reinforcement. However, if using positive reinforcement only isn't going to be effective, then they will move up the pyramid to whatever section, two, four, five, whatever one, that will result in the desired outcome by using the least amount of negative reinforcement and positive punishment possible. So in essence, a Lima trainer aims to stay as close to the bottom of the pyramid as possible while still being effective. And that's essentially what many balanced trainers do as well. But there is a difference between the two, which is that a Lima trainer will be more resistant to adding or layering in negative reinforcement and punishment. And often this is at the cost of time. Because negative reinforcement and punishment can make a dog do what we need them to do right now, they are effective at reducing the time it takes to train a dog. Within the Lima system, it may take longer to train the dog, and a Lima trainer views that as an acceptable and preferable trade-off that allows them to avoid having to use negative reinforcement and punishment altogether or using the least amount possible. They would rather avoid using them together, use the least amount possible in order to get the desired outcome, even if it takes longer to get there. So if we go back to our spectrum, we would place Lima trainers between the leftmost pole, positive reinforcement only, and the center line, because they aim to stay as positive reinforcement aligned as possible, but they will shift along the spectrum towards the compulsion end if necessary, but only as minimally as possible. This training method is great for someone whose values align strongly with positive reinforcement training, but may be dealing with some behaviors where it's impossible to control all the variables like uh, reactivity, 
So negative reinforcement and punishment are what's going to help solve that. But you might wish to limit how much negative reinforcement or punishment is used and perhaps have the time and patience and resources for training to take longer. Similarly, if you're struggling with a behavior where you can't control the variables, but you desire to have it solved faster due to limited time or resources, or perhaps it poses a health risk to you or your dog or others around you in the form of undue stress or potential injury, then a balanced trainer or a compulsion trainer would be best suited for you. But if the behavior you want addressed is rooted in or the result of an emotional struggle that the dog is having, things like reactivity based in fear or uncertainty or separation related anxieties, then balanced training is best suited for you as it would employ training methods that build positive associations and it also employs methods to stop and prevent the behavior from continuing in the future. Compulsion training wouldn't have that component of building positive associations or changing the negative emotions that the dog has into positive ones. If you simply want to teach your dog some obedience, then all of these training methods will work for you, and you'll just have to decide which mix of benefits and drawbacks you find acceptable. Whew, okay, so that was a lot. <laughs> I know especially if you got your first dog ever or haven't ever dived into formal training before, this is going to be a lot to process. And I recommend listening to it again to really help you separate everything we talked about and also ask your questions in the Facebook group. That's what that community is for. I'd, I'd be happy to clarify anything in there. If you liked this episode or found some value in it, share it with a fellow dog owner and then subscribe them to the show so that they get notifications on future episodes. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with me about training or to give feedback, the best way to do that is by visiting my website, myk9coach.com and requesting a consultation or you can send me an email at caninecoachdana at gmail.com. Both of those are listed in the show notes. Both of those use the letter K number nine and not the word canine. Please like and write a review on this episode to help the show grow. And I'll see you next time. I got to go work some dogs.